Andros here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tig Notaro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. I'm Larry Bishop, and you're listening to the World Is Wrong podcast. Do it, do uh, it like, do it like <laughs> Hugh Grant in a very English scandal. <laughs> Stephen, you have to, you have to, uh, 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 Stephen Frears. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about. Stephen Stephen Frears. Frears. Duh, Frears. Welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films and film artists the world is wrong about. I am one of your hosts, and my name is Andras Jones. And I'm also a host named Brian Connolly. And this is part two of our extended exploration of Stephen Frears. We, uh, wow. la- last week we did the high-low country and then, and then we talked for a couple hours about Stephen Frears <laughs> and realized why not turn this into two episodes and make, uh, just make it a little easier yeah. on the listeners and on ourselves. And this is the first time we've done this. We did a deep dive with John Bryan. We did a deep dive with Nicole Kidman. And now is the first, strangely the first time we've done a director really. Like we've, done episodes where we've gone through and talked about like every paul williams movie but not like this like this is definitely like a what let's talk about everything that we possibly can so it'll be it's fun i'm excited and anyone and what's great is a lot of these movies are very easy to find so if you just want to watch some stephen frears movies just go out in the world and you'll find them on a streaming place because he's made so many so yeah yeah, and what's funny is that I chose the High Low Country because I love this film. But when I did so, you got really excited about the Stephen Frears overview, and yeah. then I ended up watching all of Stephen Frears' films almost, whereas you you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but I've seen a lot of them. And what I think is like them. (laughs) What I think is funny is that you know you you like to portray yourself as a sort of a neurotic, self-critical person, but you're totally (laughs) fine just watching like five of his movies and being okay about it. Whereas I got obsessed and felt like I had to watch everyone, and I feel terribly guilty that there's three films from his filmography <laughs> that I didn't get to and I'm judging myself terribly for them if you listen to this and you're like well why didn't he cover Mm-mm. I'm like I feel the same way I feel the exact same way I hate myself for it and I'm all sorry. those sherry fans out there are yep. gonna be so upset <laughs> I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm could sorry. be his best movie for all you know where it's like this 
glaring error, but uh, no, it's fun. This is exciting. I think we should definitely do something like this again. Not anytime soon, because it's a lot of work, but yeah, some like we'll do every movie directed by Charles Lawton. That'll be a great deep dive. Oh, I, that, that's an awesome uh, one. <laughs> so here, we, let's 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 uh, let's do this. Okay, let's return to the session currently in progress. Oh, that was a great bathroom break. Thanks for giving that to me. I needed that. I've been... Okay. <laughs> you know, while I was driving today, I was thinking about the concept of pews in a, in a church. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, you know, Oh, actually, it's because I was driving there behind a truck. I was driving behind this truck, and on the back of the truck, written in the dust, it said, God watching, and then you poop. <laughs> and I was like, wow, a whole religion based upon that idea could be amazing. And I thought, oh, well, that would bring a whole new meaning to the to the idea of pews. And then I was thinking about, like, what if you lived in a this sort of theocracy where only uh, the only place there was allowed to have toilets were churches. So people <laughs> would be going to go church. To church go to the bathroom all, the, all day long. All the time. Yeah. And basically <laughs> sit, you know, basically be in the foulness of your, of the world. And, and that God was watching and forgiving that, that that's really the thing that we need. If we could all be okay with that. I mean, I think that world would evolve in some weird ways. I'll be ultimately some rebels would build their own toilets and make the argument that a relationship with God is a personal one. And so I need to be able to crap in private. Uh, and, you know, there'd be wars over it. But I think eventually I think we'd have a better society. I'm all for this toilet anyway. church. Let's do it. Um. <laughs> toilet church. I, 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 Anyways, I love this religious shit. Yeah. So, um, so, but it's kind of perfect because religion plays a huge role in Stephen Freer's work. Uh, there's a lot of his work that deals with the Catholic Church, and it's and just uh, that that plays a big role in this. And I feel like. Even though I didn't mean for that for us to go into that scatological <laughs> direction, I feel like it's something that Frears or at least one of his characters might appreciate <laughs> and also sort of look down their nose at. <laughs> so you tell me what what you said you, you've been on this Frears uh, sort of Frears kick for the last year. What were the the, the Frears? films that you've been focusing the one, on the ones that i've been like i never seen the grifters before so i watched that for the first time loved it it's so upsetting mm. and so great and sort of like the first real like john cusack kind of breaking that nice guy character and doing something really really interesting and so that was good watch the hit amazing that movie is so well made and so good so well directed. Um, I did some of his Irish comedy stuff. The Van and The Snapper are both really, really good. Yeah. And I did um, his TV. I began to do like the newer TV stuff. So very English scandal. Quiz. State of the Union. All very, very good. Like just like high caliber really good acting like really good sort of like 
just the best British actors, like really sharp writing, just like interesting character studies. And so that's kind of where I've been getting into him is like kind of the, the more the newer TV stuff. But then I also watched Dirty Pretty Things recently for the first time, which is also really compelling, really interesting. So like I've just, yeah, I'm just really fascinated by him. Like, And it's like always been just like an interesting, he doesn't make the same movie twice. It seems like at least so far from what I've seen and like just, and just to think, and High Fidelity has always been a movie that I've really loved. Like before I really appreciated Stephen Furze. Like that's such an interesting, complicated sort of comedy. <laughs> like whatever genre you want to put that movie in, like that is such a great movie. And yeah, no, I just really like him a lot. Like I, I find him just a really interesting guy. And again, it's kind of like Michael Apted, where it's just like you are just really good at your job. Like you don't write a lot of your movies but it's okay. You don't need to because you're such a strong. You have such a strong sense as a filmmaker that like your stamp is there. You don't need to like be a Vincent Gallo. You don't need to. You don't need to write and edit and do everything. You just be a good director is like something admirable that not a lot of people do. Everyone's so obsessed with being sort of the writer director. It's good to see someone who's really great at just being a good director. Well, let's let's. I want to go through his filmography because he has a really. Well, he has his own arc, his own <laughs> uh, way to to getting here. So different than Michael Apted, who sort of had a big hit with his first thing out of the mm-hmm. gate with the Up series. Frears' beginnings are a little bit more humble. Mm-hmm. So not entirely humble. He's like, I think, Oxford guy. And he was part of a review with John Cleese in college in the late 60s. And so there's, I don't know, I don't know if that's just a small world kind of thing. I don't really, uh, he and Cleese never worked together again, and comedy isn't really his bag. So that's probably just the kind of thing that gets put in Wikipedia. <laughs> and so he, but the thing is, he made one film, he made a film, a student film in 1968 called The Burning that you can see. It's on Vimeo. And it's about. A little kid growing up in apartheid South Africa. Half an hour, black and white film. Well made. Sort of uh, complex, but also simple. Like it's a a student film, Mm. but about an important topic. And it didn't set the world on fire, but it got him a gig to do his next film, which was 1971's Gumshoe. Now, have you heard anything about this I've heard film? of the movie. I've seen the box. I know literally no one who's ever seen it. Like, I don't know anyone who's seen that movie, despite having famous you do know, people. You do, do now. <laughs> Tell me about Gumshoe. Well, Albert Finney, a young Albert Finney, plays an English stand-up comedian who wants to be Humphrey Bogart. Wants to pitch. Pitch? The jab. It's all in the package. The folding green. What? The money, $20 a day plus expenses. $20? 20 little lonely dollars. We agreed, Sterling. I can live with it. What are you waiting for? We're just going. We want results. Broader the shoulder, narrow at the hip, and everyone knows you don't give no lip to Big Ed. I hadn't got a good look at the fella, but if the guys had hired him to give me the present, he'd done a good job. 
It gets around that you read thrillers and pretty soon everyone's coming on like they were packing a rug. But thoughts like that could wait. I was late for the club. So it's part of that kind of weird subgenre <laughs> of films from the early 70s. Yeah, like played against Sam. Uh, yeah. Yeah, where... <laughs> People, there. There's modern people. I mean, in a way, this also ties into the long goodbye. Mm-hmm. Sort of casual gumshoes <laughs> who are who reference, who see themselves as Bogart types, and it's it has it's a really great sort of slice of life, like in terms of like a a time capsule of late 60s early 70s london and liverpool and it's a grimy little story about heroin and murder and corruption and i don't know the plot kind of get after a while i i you know i, I don't want to describe the plot and I, I couldn't describe the plot but it's a it's a it's a reasonably interesting ride and Billy Whitelaw, who's uh, an actress who I re- an English actress who I really like, and she plays one of the main roles. So that was it's great to see Albert Finney and Billy Whitelaw in it. And it's it's a film that uh, on that Guardian list gets more love than maybe I than I think maybe it deserves. But at the same time, it also it's the only film that Stephen Frears made until 1984. <laughs> so between 1971 and 1984, he, I guess, paid his dues, paid his penance, made his penance, um, or and learned his craft working in English television. And so worked all through that time as a director for the BBC and, you know, doing TV. Yeah. And then in, I, I haven't seen much of any of that or any of yeah. that really. But I imagine... It's good, and maybe some of it's great. If you um, can find it, like how then, you, it's a lot of stuff is like, right. where do you get even find that stuff? Probably if you live in England, you <laughs> saw yeah. it when it came out. So that really built his career as a an English director. Yeah, so he uh, he learns his craft making all of this English television. And then there's the hit, which I haven't seen for many years. So tell us about the hit. Oh, it's so good. It's it's like, it it feels kind of ahead of its time. It feels like something that definitely would have been in the 90s, like when that kind of thing was going on. But it's basically Terrence Stamp, uh, you know, is it's just it's just one of those movies where just it's a small cast. They're mostly just in a car driving around. What's you grinning at, asshole? Sorry. Got nothing to smile about, mate, if you knew. If I knew, he thinks I don't know. If I knew. Where's Mr. Corrigan? London. Have you fellas got a boat stashed away somewhere? No, can't see it. We're travelling north. No, I'd say quick run up through France and then over the drink. That's your only problem, seems to me, getting me over the water. Yeah, well, Corrigan ain't in London, he's in Paris. My own. 
Sorry, Mr. Braddock. Myron. That's an unusual name. Myron. Well, Paris. So, across the frontier at where? Somewhere quiet, eh? Up through France, should get to Paris five, six in the morning. Quick word with Mr. Corrigan and then lights out Willie. The executioner and his assistant. Yeah, well, if you know it, ain't funny, is it? Isn't it? I'll tell you something I read once, you. Myra. Uh, Parker, Mr. Braddock. Willie Parker. You. Shut your mouth. Got some practice in, eh? And you, you have Tim, a very young Tim Roth. John Hurt. Uh, you have a Jim Broadbent. Like it's a yeah. very, it's a very good little cast, and it's just, uh, you know, just like old British gangster, and then the guy's trying to kill him, and it's in this beautiful uh, location, uh, and it just feels low budget, but it does a lot with its low budget. Like it's just such a beautiful looking movie, and it's kind of the beginning, like. Not the beginning, because I guess there's gumshoe, but it just kind of keeps hitting. Like, Stephen Furst clearly loves playing with noir elements, like you talked about with High Low Country. Like, he's definitely into this sort of noirish world, but not having it be, like, an obvious film noir thing. It's definitely, like, his own thing. And this isn't like even other British gangster movies. It's its own strange thing. It's very philosophical. And again, everybody working in this gray area where you don't really think that anyone's a good guy or a bad guy they're all just like these really fascinating human beings and the fact that like he took all this time honing his craft and then this is the movie he actually starts with like that was the right decision that Stephen Dick was like okay gumshoe didn't quite work I'm gonna work really hard and be really good act- director really know how to work with actors and now here's it almost feels like his second first movie was like, okay, now here's my real first movie is this one. And he made it when he's 43, which is interesting. Like as most directors kind of start breaking it when they're in like their late 20s. But he doesn't really hit the scene re- till he's 43. And then he's kind of off and running. But man, I love the hit. I think that movie is very, very good. Now, am I right in thinking that the limey feel is like a kind it does. of an homage it feels very much like in this in the same world in a way you know like it definitely has that kind of like the way terrence stamp is really badass and cool in the way in this movie but then also kind of has this sort of vulnerability that if tapped into can get to like that's very much to me like the limey just sort of like stylish you know very you know just terrence stamp is awesome <laughs> And so then he just from then on, it's like he's been he's been waiting. He's ready <laughs> to 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 go because the next thing he does is my beautiful laundrette in eighty yep. five, prick up your ears in eighty seven, and Sammy and Rosie get laid. It also in eighty seven. Uh, this would be like really his coming. His sort of as an as an indie English director mm-hmm. and, and working with and... like Alfred Molina and Daniel Day Lewis, like before they were really big and like giving him like, and Gary, and Gary Oldman, Oldman and just giving them just like really getting really great performances from these like younger 
kind of British, these this new wave of British actors. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm, I'm looking at my timeline here because so on the, the hit is 1984. And then in 85, he collaborates with the writer, the screenwriter, Hanif Qureshi on my beautiful laundrette. And then they work together on Sammy and Rosie Get Laid. These were all films that I saw when I was in high school, and I was I was probably not sophisticated enough to get them. I remember actually being kind of bored by both of them <laughs> at the time. Have you seen either of those films? Uh, I've recently? never seen Prick Up Your Ears as Sam and Rosie Get Laid. No, not, not Prick Up Your Ears, My, my Beautiful Laundrette. Yeah, that one I've Sammy seen and recently, and it's very good. It totally holds up. Like, it's just a good character piece. Like, this really well done. Uh, uh, you know, like, it just, yeah, it's a great movie. And Daniel Day-Lewis, like, you know, is amazing. Like, <laughs> in, like, one of his first roles. And he's so good. It's, yeah, it's a, that's, a, that's definitely a movie worth seeking out. And what's, what's it about? It, it's, it, it's sort of like, it's about, um, it's just, it's just sort of like a, it kind of deals with racism in a way. Because it's about, there's a kind of like a guy who's uh, Pakistan living in England and but there but, but on top of that to make it harder for his life he is gay and his boyfriend is Daniel Day-Lewis and it's just sort of like that it's but it's a comedy <laughs> if you can believe it. your father he went out of his way with you and with all my friends he did didn't he Omar what's you on about man about how years later he saw the same boys and what were they doing? What? Marching. Marching through Lewisham. It was bricks and bottles and Union Jacks. It was immigrants out, kill us. People we knew. And it was you. He saw you marching and you saw his face watching you. Don't deny it, we were there when you went past. Operated himself and he hated his job. He was afraid on the streets for me. So he took it out on her and she couldn't bear it. Such failure. Such emptiness. Yeah, it's just sort of the type of movie again that if this was like 1996, this would have been like a hit indie movie at Sundance. But it's kind of ahead. It feels sort of ahead of its time, like you know, like who's making. But it was definitely it was. a hit. Oh yeah, I remember. Yeah, it was. It was. It was a hit. It was. But it, like you know, like it seemed like there were other movies that became like this later, like this. Like, but there were a lot of movies like this later. But this was sort of like one of the first ones that kind of feel like that kind of movie. Um, I think it's really good. I really like it a lot. Uh, and the yeah, the performers are all really awesome and. There's punks in it. So. Oh, so <laughs> did in, it get written it's about? It's in the book. In... It's in the punk book, yeah. Destroy all movies it's... available from Fantagraphics. <laughs> get it if you can. <laughs> if you're Sam Elliott, you can afford it <laughs> from Hilo <laughs> Country. <laughs> but uh, no, it's a good little movie. It's just like it's like that kind of thing that Frears is really good at when he's not doing his sort of genre twisting. He makes these good 
little movies about people with just like really just great performances and like they seem small on paper but then when you watch it there's just so much rich stuff there it's just really really good yeah and then in between those is prick up your ears which was at the time i think the reason people watched it aside from maybe start of catching on to this director Stephen frears was seeing Gary Oldman in his follow-up to playing Sid Vicious. Yeah. And in it, he plays the playwright Joe Orton, who was gay and was killed by his lover. Uh, had his, uh, in a, in a, a brutal, in a br- really brutal way. And that lover is played by Alfred Molina. Well... It's five o'clock. It's a quarter past five. It's only 14 pounds. Peggy hates it. That's where you've been. She likes you. Peggy's one of your few fans. Any call? I've been worried stiff. Why? Doesn't start till nine. The whole point about irrational behavior is that it is irrational. I don't worry about anything. I just worry. that you stop being such a bilious queen i ought to be there by eight to check the arrangements i'm frightened nobody will come they'll come and what sort of day have you had kenneth and what sort of day have you had kenneth well not unproductive joe actually i caught up on a big backlog of dusting then i slipped down the road to replenish our stock of cornflakes when i returned i rinsed through a selection of your soiled underclothes by which time it was four o'clock the hour of your scheduled return when you failed to appear i redeemed the shining hour by cutting my toenails what do you expect me to do shag the dimplex <laughs> you can still be quite funny still you've been reading my diary no why not i would it is uh it's it was definitely the moment when i got the what a an acting force gary oldman was it was it to me it was just as dramatic as dustin hoffman going from the graduate to ratso rizzo going from sid vicious to joe orton was like oh yeah, this is this guy is an actor. This is a very special person, and it's a it's a it's a good film. It's a it's a hard film. Uh, I think the if you're interested in Joe Orton, the the British playwright, it's well. If you're interested in him, then you've probably already seen it. And <laughs> if you're interested in Gary Oldman, then it's definitely worth seeing. And at the time, he jumped out, but obviously, Alfred Molina is. A pretty amazing actor as well, mm-hmm. but this is when we get to his to Stephen Frears becoming a major filmmaker. I think yeah. because the next two are Dangerous Liaisons and The Grifters uh, from nineteen eighty eight and nineteen ninety, and those are both. Have you seen Dangerous Liaisons? I did not, but I remember when it came out, that was a movie that, like, my parents and all of their friends were, like, gushing about. Like, that was a movie that, like, grown-ups in the late 80s were very excited about Dangerous Liaisons. I can see I'm going to have to tell you everything. Of course you are. Yes, well, my aunt is not on her own just at the moment. She has a young friend staying with her. 
and Madame de Torvel. You can't mean it. To seduce a woman famous for strict morals, religious fervor, and the happiness of her marriage, what could possibly be more prestigious? I think there's something degrading about having a husband for a rival. It's humiliating if you fail and commonplace if you succeed. Where is Monsieur de Torvel, anyway? Presiding over some endless case in Burgundy. I don't think you can hope for any actual pleasure. Oh, yes. You see, I have no intention of breaking down her prejudices. I want her to believe in God and virtue and the sanctity of marriage and still not be able to stop herself. I want the excitement of watching her betray everything that's most important to her. Surely you understand that. I thought betrayal was your favorite word. No, no. Cruelty. I always think that has a nobler ring to it. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's an excellent, it's a great film, a huge showcase for Glenn Close. And you got to give it credit because you got this film that's all about the two sexiest, most prolific lovers in Paris. And they're played by two of the weirdest looking Hollywood (laughs) A-listers in John Malkovich and Glenn Close. That's a pretty, it sort of seems because it was successful, like a kind of conservative film, but it really is anything but. It's a really, I went back and watched it. It's a really kind of dangerous and literally dangerous film. Couple of things. First of all, you know the that style of film, the corsets and the and the cleavage, the big boot pushing the bustier things. Yeah. That's that's sort of part of whether it's Amadeus or all of these movies. But this film just yeah. takes that to this whole other level, and it kind of is one of the things that, like, because Stephen Frears is such a sensitive director it doesn't come off as like a Benny Hill, Russ Meyer type thing. But in terms of breast cinema, there's these, there's this one scene where <laughs> Glenn Close and Uma Thurman and Swoozie Kurtz are all sitting on these couches waiting for Malkovich to arrive. And then he arrives and they all have these bustiers and it's like, it's he, he films it like he's filming storm clouds on the horizon, like watching <laughs> Uma Thurman breast act in this movie, it doesn't even like it doesn't as I'm describing it, it sounds creepy, but if you watch it, it's just sort of like a sort of beautifully emotional and it's uncomfortable, but not in a creepy way. It's uncomfortable because you can feel her discomfort and arousal and nervousness. And yeah, it's like like watching three very plump chickens vibrating in nervousness around this guy. And then that all ends on this scene where Malkovich very gently, as if he's kissing the head of a baby, he goes to kiss Glenn Close on the cheek, but instead he kisses each of her breasts just super tenderly. And so it's just like, it's such a weird scene. And the thing about Frears is somehow he shoots this in a way that isn't at all like you'd think it would be like there is no there is no prurience in it 
And I don't know how he does it. I know other than that, he just really knows how to work with these actors. So that's one mm-hmm. thing going on there. And then this also made me uh, have to go back and confront Keanu Reeves before The Matrix. <laughs> because people who have grown up on Keanu Reeves since The Matrix just will have no way to relate to what an embarrassment he was as an actor for almost a decade up till that. He had a few things that kind of kind of broke out a little bit, but he always followed it up with a real embarrassing turn. And this was one of them. And there was a time for young actors where it was we just we watched as Keanu Reeves just got one chance after another to be terrible in whether it's much ado about nothing or I'm going I'm trying to look at his IMDb here before the matrix the devil's advocate and little buddha people really made fun of him for that and dracula and I loved him in my own private idaho but compared to river phoenix he definitely was he wasn't the standout in that I love you to death. He was just parenthood. He was over and over acting in these films that I think that's one of the things where maybe it made me less sympathetic to this film at the time because I was just so yeah, like, oh, God, Keanu's getting another chance. And he was like someone who I didn't know, but I kind of knew. Yeah. So. I really like Keanu Reeves. I feel I don't know. Like now. I, I hear people's opinion. No, even then, I feel like I mean I was guilty of making fun of him, especially in Much Ado About Nothing, because it doesn't fit with the other. Because he's just doing his California <laughs> accent in a way. But like he is even in like uh, the I Love You to Death. There's something really interesting. I, I I don't know. I've always found him very interesting, even when it seems like he's doing kind of a non-acting. There's something about him. I don't know. I've always found myself drawn to Keanu Reeves. And I feel like people, yeah, I'm glad that people have come back to liking him or started to like him recently in this John Wick era, because I feel like he kind of gets a bad rap of of being this terrible actor. And maybe also though, Devil's Advocate is not a great movie (laughs) to begin with, but Pacino's great in it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he just isn't can't. He's one of those people that can't rise above some of the material, or like when you're or even rise against, to it. Yeah, when you're thrown against the cast of Dangerous Liaisons, like that's a hard, like that takes like that's a hard cast to kind of reach up to if you're a young uh, actor, I think too. So I mean, some people can definitely hit that home run, but I think maybe he just wasn't quite there yet uh, with this movie. Well, uh, two things. One. Uma Thurman didn't have as much didn't have much trouble and she didn't have nearly his experience. She hadn't had Oh, yeah. If Uma Thurman had been as bad as Keanu Reeves was in that movie, we would never have heard from her again. <laughs> it wasn't that he She's was She's always good. <laughs> and then and I just want to say on behalf of Billy Crudup, how dare you, sir? How dare you? You have said so many <laughs> Bad things about Billy Crudup in this episode, <laughs> because basically like, because he's too like... handsome. But Keanu Reeves, you he gets a pass. He's not he's not thirsty enough for you. He, you know, I don't know. I just find him interesting. There's something about it. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> Billy Crudup should have been te- in Dangerous Liaisons. That's what I'm saying. 
And then he follows that up with The Grifters, oh, which you just spoke of. Amazing. But, yeah. And these are the two yeah. movies that got him, like, nominated for Best Director at the Oscars and, like, the crit- like Critical Darling. Like, all the critics love these movies, put them on their Best Movies of the Year list. Like, these are two, like, much-loved, much, you know, much-appreciated movies at the time. Like, people, like, this would definitely open up to be, like... All right, Stephen Frears, welcome to Hollywood. Like, here, what do you want to yeah. do? <laughs> like, here, like you are great. And so, in a way, it's sort of his downfall for a moment. <laughs> and so, oh boy! So let's get here into so let's get into that. So, like, definitely, if you've never seen The Grifters, check it out. It is a solid, fucking great movie. But then it's sort of like the, it's, wait, it's the introduction of Annette Bening, and she would steal that movie if. It wasn't so firmly mm-hmm. in the hands of Angelica Houston and John Cusack. No, really. You're Roy's mother? Mm-hmm. That's impossible. Not quite. But I'm not sure who you are, Mrs. Langtree, was it? I'm Roy's friend. Yes. I imagine you're lots of people's friend. Oh. Oh, of course. Now that I see you in the light, you're plenty old enough to be Roy's mother. Aren't we all? Play nice, don't fight. Darling! Roy, you're gonna be all right. Sure I am. What am I doing here? You were bleeding inside, honey. Remember that bruise you had? You called the doctor, huh? Well... No, Roy. Your mother did. Yeah? Thanks. How long do they say until I can get out of here? Roy, your mom saved your life. Yeah. Second time I gave it to you. I was kind of... inconvenient. Lily. She was only 14 when I came along. In fact, I used to be her kid brother. Well, or so she'd say. Well, you're all right now, I guess. It's a two-hour drive. I'm late. I have to go down to the track. Thanks, uh, Lily. Don't mention it. I guess I owe you my life. You always did. And there's something we're seeing here is... The people that Stephen Frears is focused yeah. on are not the people who films were really focused on at that time over and over and over again. We're starting to see. I mean, after the hit, which is sort of like, hey, I got I, I got to come back and make it. I got to make a movie that's a, a movie. But then my beautiful laundrette, Sammy and Rosie get laid. Yeah. Prick up your ears. Those are focused on people who are not. They're not Billy Crudup and Woody Harrelson in the high-low country. And then Dangerous Liaisons, it's so much of it comes from a deep feeling for Glenn Close and Michelle (laughs) Pfeiffer. And then the Grifters, we have Angelica Houston and Annette Bening. And of course, there are guys doing great work. I mean, as you say, John Cusack's great in it. But the film, Mm -hmm. these films are strong because they have a real... I don't want to say they have a feminine heart, but I guess Stephen Frears's male gaze is really sensitive and feeling and thoughtful. And he brings 
I feel like none of that to his next film. <laughs> I don't know what he was doing. I think he was probably, uh, he probably was, he went to Old Coke Road with Chevy Chase. <laughs> What'd you think of the fall shot, Chief? The guy drops 20 stories in perfect focus center frame while I smoothly go from F-16 to F-5-6. Hell of a shot, Chuck. He's beautiful. Parker! Run this down to Fraser. Tell him we'll open with it at 6, 11, and 7 a.m. Bet she pushed him just for the great shot. Blind ambition. Pushed him? Oh, my God. Not really. Oh, he's just kidding, Mr. Wallace. Conklin's jealous because it wasn't his story. Actually, it tore up because we couldn't save the guy. She wanted to reach out. Reach out? Hi, Chief. Like the suicide? Never reach out. Hello, Mr. Wallace. He's right. It's unprofessional. No, if you reach out, you could get pulled over yourself. What are we talking about here? I told him how you're upset we didn't save the guy. Saving people is not our job. It's just as wrong to step in and save someone as it would be to push him off. You wouldn't push the guy, would you? I didn't say I thought we should have saved him. You didn't? No, I said I wish it had at least occurred to me to consider saving him. What good would that do? It would make me feel like a human being. Besides, it's not a bad story, is it? Newswoman saves suicide? It's unprofessional. Oh, you just can't bear the idea of good news. You're sitting on your ticket. Ticket? Of what's going on? She's flying to New York. She's been nominated for a Silver Mike Award. Silver Mike? You are covering us in glory. Well, I haven't won yet. I noticed you had me scheduled on a flight back an hour after the ceremony. An hour after Deke? For heaven's sake, let's at least give her a night in New York City. I tell you what, we'll put her and her boyfriend up better. She broke up with her boyfriend. Listen, babe, we need you back. You gotta follow up on the jumper. Find the human interest in the grim, unending woe that pours from the wounded heart of the heartless metropolis. The dirt, you mean? That, too. Would this station put me up in a really good hotel? Absolutely. So long, babe. Okay, to hell with it. Party on, Gail. Is that what they say? I'll figure something out. She's pretending to be a person. She's really just a reporter. 50 bucks says she'll be back on the first flight. Uh, yeah, I never saw Hero, but it's a movie. It's weird because you, your instant reaction to watch it the other day was, man, that movie's terrible. But I have friends who are like, that's the best Stephen Frears movie. <laughs> I haven't seen it, so I, I'm kind of, I don't know. Uh, it's got a great cast, and I feel like, I, you know, I think it's on paper, it looks like a movie that I would love. I'm like, this is a great plot. I like these actors. I like the complaints that I'm hearing from other people. Or like setting off things in my mind, being like, that sounds like something that I would be really into. So I'm interested to <laughs> dive into Hero. Uh, but it definitely was a flop. Nobody liked it <laughs> when it came out. It sort of undid all his, you know, credit that he had. Like he was definitely like with like a major falter for him, I feel. At least in terms of the opinions of most critics when it came out. Yeah. it. I mean, he never <laughs> did anything like it before. And he never did anything like it after. So the fact that he was able to bounce back from such a not liked and failure of a movie is a pretty good sign of his talents, I guess. Especially since he falls it up with Mary Riley, which is another movie that everyone hates and it was a big failure. Wait, so let's back <laughs> so... up. Let's back up for a second because I just want to describe Hero because I don't want to just say what it like. Who cares that I that I don't like it? It uh, doesn't matter. That's just my opinion. But what it is, it's about, first of all, it, it stars Dustin Hoffman, Gina Davis, Andy Garcia, and Joan Cusack, and and Chevy Chase. Not really stars Chevy Chase. Chevy Chase has a has a role in it, and but he's a star who is in the movie. And Andy Garcia. And 
it's really a Dustin Hoffman movie. And you know how much like Dustin Hoffman's one of my favorite actors. And he's I really think he's not great in this, but he plays <laughs> a, a sort of low rent. He's, he's very much in Ishtar mode, like he's the the bad guy scammer and he's going to like he's about to get sent to jail and lose his kid and Joan Cusack is his ex-wife who hates him for always letting the kid down and he's and we, he's portrayed as a really unsympathetic person stealing money from his own lawyer who's this you know a you know very nice young woman and then there's a plane crash and he goes into save some people one of those people is played by gina davis and there's this whole other movie that feels kind of like it wants to be the hudsucker proxy where gina davis and chevy chase and the guy who played ned ryerson in oh stephen tobolowski stephen tobolowski are doing this sort of like old style like snappy dialogue in and she's a reporter and mm-hmm. and he's and uh, Chevy Chase is the editor and so it has this it's doing that thing and that's one movie and then there's the Dustin Hoffman movie guy sort of like I'm a bad guy about to do a good thing movie and they collide when her plane crashes and he saves her but she's she doesn't really see who he is and nobody sees who he is. He doesn't stick around. He actually steals her wallet and <laughs> tries to get away with a bunch of stuff. Like so he was he's in there saving people, but he's also ripping them off. And then the next day he tells his buddy Andy Garcia that he that this happened, and then Andy Garcia goes and takes credit for it. What a and jerk. But he is like this sort of seen as this heroic guy. And so it's all about is is Dustin Hoffman, like whatever, you know what it's about. I just I just told you what it's about. So all of that, there's nothing wrong with that. But tonally, it is I, I, I could see how you're going to like the parts that break this movie. But <laughs> I can't imagine you're going to watch it and be like, this movie makes sense in the realm of what Stephen Frears is. <laughs> like if this was directed by Dan Aykroyd, it would be good. But it's just, it's for a guy who's so sure, like every other thing I, every other film of his that I watched looked like it was, if it was anything wrong with it, it was that it, it really knew what it was. And it just does that. I wonder if there was like heavy studio manipulation or something like there's something that got taken away from him or I, I don't know the story, yeah, but that it, makes sense. But you're right. He's a very self-assured director always. So to have a movie that doesn't know what it is and that that seems so unlike a Stephen Frears. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> so then tell me about Mary Riley. Did it's you see that? A long time ago. It's I, I you know, it's not a good sign that I've seen that movie and I remember nothing about it. I remember my mom again bringing it home. Big first fan, I guess my mom was, watched it and immediately erased it from my memory. I know I've sat through the duration of that movie, watched it, and I got nothing. I remember the trailer where they whispered the name Mary Riley. Remember that? But that is all my takeaways from that movie. Did you get a chance to watch it? I did. I did. And you're right. It's not good. Uh, <laughs> but 
you can totally see why it exists because it's a they reunite Malkovich and Glenn Close. What do you want? Just a word. Thought we might have a little chat about improving our financial arrangements. Stay where you are. I'll be with you in a moment. There's something I have to do first. Don't be too long. It ain't very festive down here. I'll bring the tea in a minute, sir. What? Mr. Hyde ordered some tea and sandwiches. No, cancelled the tea. Hold your horses. I'm parched. I'm sure you'd prefer something stronger. It won't take me a moment to prepare it. Have it your own way. You can kind of see there's a little bit of flop sweat to it. Like I'm not I, okay. I don't really. I'm not sure I know how to make a Hollywood movie anymore. I'll just do what people <laughs> want me to do. Uh, but it does have mm-hmm. it. It does have its charms. I think it would be way better as a as a limited series, like a series like Penny Dreadful kind of lives Mm. where this lives and considering where Mm. Freer's goes in terms of TV, it just feels like maybe Mm. it's a little bit just out of its time, not ahead of its time, but a little bit out of its time. And it also features Mm. the beginning, at least as far as I'm aware of Freer's work with Michael Sheen, who shows up in a co-star role as one of the other a... servants who is like giving, giving oh, wow. Julia Roberts grief. I didn't even know he was in uh, Hollywood movies at that point. Yeah. So that's interesting. And huh. this feels still, this does feel more like, even though it's Hollywood actors, it feels more like an English film. Uh, mm. So, mm. but it's, yeah, it's, it's just, yeah, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't work, but it's not, it's funny because it's known as being so bad. It didn't come off as bad as I've heard it is, but it's not as good as so much of his other work. So. Yeah, yeah. It just it's it's kind of it's mostly forgettable. Like I really don't remember. Like I saw it when it came out, and I was kind of like, "That's not very good," and then I just kind of forgot about it. So it's just sort of another, and at the time, a movie that nobody liked. It was sort of like, "Oh, I guess Stephen Frears is done." And so it's just kind of like a sad, yet another misstep. But interesting that he's trying these new things. He's like, I'll do my silly, weird hot sucker proxy type movie. I'll do this weird take on a horror film. So he's still interesting in that way, but the movies just aren't working. And then that kind of like between Hero and Mary Riley, he makes the snapper. And between Mary Riley and Hilo Country, he makes the van. So he goes kind of away from Hollywood and makes these two great Irish kind of comedy drama family character study things. The snapper was made for TV. The van was not. Uh, And they're really good. And they're by the same guy who wrote The Commitment. So it has that kind of feel to it. And it's actually a shame he didn't do The Commitment and just didn't do the trilogy of like of of that guy's work. But like they're really good. And it's sort of like a little taste of what he ends up being later on and a little taste of what he was earlier where he's like oh you're a british filmmaker but you're kind of doing this weird dance with hollywood that's not quite working and at least you're able to kind of slip in these little you know like you know you know you, you know great britain type story yeah these it's ireland not england but like still like just these kind of stories that are more like your earlier stuff more like uh laundrette and stuff like that so it's that <laughs> that writer is roddy doyle yeah. 
and Colmini is in both of those. And those two films really speak to each other in some really... That's a good double feature. Yeah. I recommend oh, yeah. watching those right with each other. With, with I think they really, they both films together make it a stronger artistic statement, mm-hmm. especially as someone who didn't live it. Like maybe if I lived that world, each of those films would really hit on its own. Yeah. But the two of them together, the snapper is about... It's the snapper is a slang in England for a baby, and so it's about an unwanted pregnancy. Yeah, and Colmini plays the father. You're not upset, are you? No, I think Alderoid's a bit of a compliment, really, isn't it? Jesus, I don't know about that. Anyway, we shouldn't be saying things like that. Sure, men are always saying things like that about girls, but not about daughters. Don't be ticked out, girls are daughters. Well, not my fucking daughters, then. That's hypocritical. I don't give a show you what it is. He has daughters of his own. That young one. Your friend. Yvonne? Yeah, that's right. It's shocking. I don't want some fat little fucker insulting any of my family. Especially not you. You're me knight in shining armor. Ah, uh, don't start that. <sighs> I just thought I should let you know. I think that's my favorite of the two. It's, I think I like it. It's more, more complicated. Than the van. It's definitely got more of that kind of Freer's gray area thing again, where it's just sort of like you want to hate the dad for being this way to the daughter, and you want to hate the the creepy old man who got the young lady pregnant. And but it's like it's all very complicated. But also because it's Colmini and it's and it's because it's Roddy Doyle, it had there's a humor to it, and so it's not just like this sad you know story about these dead people's lives like there is like a, a little bit of there's like a nice humor with well, like the way that it deals with the family dynamic and the situation that they're all stuck in and actually it's funny it's because in his the dad he plays in the snapper i think is really like i have a lot of feeling for him like he's really trying to do you really feel him trying to do his best with mm-hmm. this and he's i feel like he's great whereas the van he feels more like a scammer and has more of like this big night quality. Maybe it's just having worked in food service. Anyone who would pick up food off the floor and then serve it to someone is like, that's worse than anything Sam Elliott does in the high low But the van, the van is more of a comedy than the snapper. How are you, Vera? Grand, Larry. Happy Christmas now. Yeah. Uh, the girls are in the kitchen. Good for them. How are you, missus? Hey, she's looking better than she did last year. Vera. Vera. There's a funny whiff of your mummy in law. Ah, I'm serious. Go over. Bimbo, smell is fucking atrocious. Oh, my God. She have to do something to herself. Well, it could just be a fart, but I check it out. I can smell something myself. Bimbo, this could ruin your Christmas dinner. He did this to his brother last night, the exact same thing. I can't smell anything. Oh, you must have a cold, because I tell you, it's getting fucking worse. It isn't, is it? God, this is desperate. 
How are you, Vera? How are you, Wesley? Happy Christmas. Happy. Never mind Christmas. Your mother. Is she has a name, you know. That's not all she has, chicken. Fuck, <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. And like, it's a van to me. It's just like a really fun, just like that kind of like movie made in Great Britain that like that it just like it has this nice quality to it that if maybe it was made in America, it would just be some dopey comedy. But because they're all Irish, it's just, there's something more interesting about it because the plot of that's pretty basic. You know, it's about these friends who want to have this like uh, you know this van that serves food, and that's kind of it's like, it's like. Snapper, by the way. So they're serving Snapper, at, which is a weird. When I every time they show, like they're showing, they says Snapper a lot in the van, and I'm watching and thinking, but Snapper is babies. Yeah, but it's but I think it's, it's the, the, these two movies were like Freer's sort of doing, like checking in with himself, being like, okay, I made these two big Hollywood yep. movies, but I still can do it. I'm just gonna make these little things and not get totally. Yeah. You're seduced by garbage Hollywood and just become this sad figure because <laughs> he could have easily become yeah. some director that we we're like, oh, he was so great, and then he had never again. And then that leads you to the Hilo Country, which is the movie he made right after the Van. We we certainly talked about right. that, <laughs> but this is... yes, I just want to say like it's it's like what you're talking about with those films. It's like a band that goes back to its roots yeah. or something. It's like, like we're gonna oh, okay. yeah, we need to just get back Let's in the unplug studio and just kind of do the way like, we used to do yeah. and just sort of forget about the big glitz and glam of our highly overproduced album and let's yeah. just do the acoustic thing, man. Or let's get rid of the just Cole Meany. Just, just give me Cole Meany. Cole Meany was the cleanse that Stephen Fears needed. Then he makes a Hilo Country, which right. is an American movie, but it's not like the other ones. It feels more like a character study. It's not this big bloated crap. And then, then he yeah. gets really interested. Then in the year two thousand, he's on a roll, and in one year he does High Fidelity, the TV movie version of Failsafe, and Liam, which you saw, which I've not seen, which you said was really good. And in one year, making those three very interesting, very different movies. Yeah. Uh, so high fidelity. What do we need to say? I think everyone it's fucking great. It's probably the, it's probably the <laughs> most like <laughs> just sort of universal Hollywood movie that he's made. Is yeah. That, would you say it's? I mean, it's. But it's also it's, very British because it's based on Nick Hornby book and it has that right. Nick Hornby thing going on. But it takes place in America, so it's interesting. I'm looking for a record for my daughter for her birthday. I just called to say I love you. Do you have it? Yeah. Great, we have it. Great. Can I have it then? No, no, you can't. Why not? Well, it's sentimental, tacky crap. That's why not. Do we look like the kind of store that sells I just called to say I love you? Go to the mall. What's your problem? Do you even know your daughter? There's no way she likes that song. Oh, oh, oh. is she in a coma? Oh, okay, buddy. I didn't know it was pick on the middle-aged square guy day. My apologies. I'll be on my way. Bye-bye. Fuck you. Nice, Mary. Really, really nice. It was just top class. Rob, top five musical crimes perpetrated by Stevie Wonder in the 80s and 90s go. Sub-question, is it in fact 
unfair to criticize a formerly great artist for his latter-day sins, is it better to burn out than to fade away? You're fucking broke, man. Jesus, he was gonna buy one record, which we didn't even have, and then leave and never come back again anyway. Not the point. What did he ever do to you? He offended me with his terrible taste. It wasn't even his terrible taste. It was his daughter's. Are you defending that ass muncher? Come on, Rob. You're going soft in your old age. Jesus, now all of a sudden I'm offending your golf buddy. I'm gonna tell you something for your own good, pal. That's the worst fucking sweater I've ever seen. It's a Cosby sweater. A Cosby sweater. Did Laura let you leave the house like that? Because, like... <laughs> hey, hey, hey. What are you doing? Will you shut up? Uh, Will you? Break it up. You're a fucking maniac. I swear to God, if you tore this thing, it's vintage, and I will fucking sock your nose. You'll pay big. But it shows the sophistication of John Cusack as mm -hmm. a movie star. Oh, yeah. That he, you've got to figure that Cusack chose Frears, yeah, not the other way around. I I feel that must be the case. Yeah, it Cusack feels very, was developing that. It feels very much like a Cusack thing. Yeah, but he picked the right director for it. Yeah. Uh, so, but that's really so. High Fidelity is really a work for hire and <laughs> a, a great example. Because I, I I do remember hearing that 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 Cusack was had got the rights to High Fidelity, and he was developing it. And I think that's coming off of Gross Point Blank. Mm -hmm. So he really is in primo producer star yeah, mode. Yeah. Anyway, let's go. He's about to hit a stride like, you're, like you wouldn't believe. So you're right. So did you see Failsafe? The TV yeah, and that's movie? the one that was done in the old way where it was a live broadcast. Coming to you live from CBS, your host, Mr. Walter Cronkite. Ladies and gentlemen, you're at an opening night. Tonight, television takes a giant step. For the next two hours, this network will be presenting the first feature-length story to be broadcast live on CBS in 39 years. Tonight's show, Failsafe, is based on the best-selling novel by Eugene Burdick and Harry Harvey Wheeler and written for the screen by Walter Bernstein. You're tuned to CBS the clocks are turned back, and our story begins in just one minute. Actually, after just hearing that clip now, I know I've never seen this. But I remember <laughs> the commercial. I remember the commercial playing a lot because it was CBS, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think I just saw the ad so much and that I'm like, yeah, that movie. And I'm like, no, I've never watched <laughs> I should watch it. Did you watch it? Yeah, yeah, I did. And it's really, it's really great. It's it's kind of amazing how cinematic it is, considering that it's a live uh, television show shot live. It doesn't mm -hmm. feel like it doesn't feel like a stage as as much as it as you'd think it would. Uh, it's mm. really, really like it's excellent. The actors are great, and for people who aren't aware, Failsafe is the original version of Doctor Strangelove. And Kubrick was trying to adapt it as a film and realized that the only way for him to tell the story was to make it into a comedy, which it's not a comedy at all. It's a very <laughs> dark and scary story about nuclear politics gone wrong. And then in 1964, there was another version of actual failsafe with Henry Fonda, a black and white mm -hmm. version. And that version's very good. But this version is definitely closer to how good Strange Love is than to where the original version of Failsafe is, which is a good film. But this version, 
I feel like it really has the impact that it needs to have without being, uh, it has a light touch. Again, where we're seeing Freer's having this ability to have not a light touch in the sense that he plays things lightly, but a light touch in that he trusts the material to be what it is. And if he just shows it and allows great acting to happen around it, that we feel the impact without him having to hammer it home. Mm-hmm. I particularly like that in this one, we have Richard Dreyfus playing the president that was played by Henry Fonda in the original one and Peter Sellers in, well, I don't, it's hard to say original, but you know what I'm saying? That uh, Peter Sellers was in Strange yeah, yeah, Love. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Richard Dreyfus, our first Jewish president overseeing the end of the world. So <laughs> Finally. <laughs> But mostly it's, I mean, other than the movie stars uh, with George Clooney and Don Cheadle there, you've also got Charles Durning and Harvey Keitel and Sam Elliott and John Deal from the High Low Country and James Cromwell. A lot of just really great older uh, American stage actors. And uh, I need to watch that. And it's, I was also noticing that was the year that he, he comes back to Hollywood and he is really serving movie stars. Like, okay, I'm going to make High Fidelity with John Cusack kind of being my boss and my star, and I'm going to make Failsafe with George Clooney being my boss and my star. And there's just something about... It, it speaks to his ability, I think, to probably be the kind... A really sensitive director that actors mm-hmm. like to work with and know they can trust mm-hmm. him to let them do a little directing... And yeah, yeah. and that it's, he's not going to get bent out of shape because he's just he's confident in what he does and he knows how to that. I guess that's not like he knows how to be in service, even though he's the boss of all these films and he's the director. They're just there is this real strong sense of sen- sensitivity to the process that comes through. Yeah, so, yeah, it's a it's yeah. a, it's a good. One. Okay, <laughs> well then let's let's move on to Liam. Uh, now this. This film is, I as we're laying out the picture, it is the natural next extension of the snapper and the van, but it is a much more just, I don't know, hard on its sleeve, beautiful masterpiece of a film. It's all seen through the eyes of a eight or nine year old child a boy with a a really terrible stutter so he can't really express himself he's misunderstood a lot of the time but when he does it has tremendous impact he'll ask you how much say seven and a tanner i will not write it down you can say it say it how much you want? How much? 
Okay, so Liam, uh, it takes place in Liverpool in the 1930s. And it's uh, about a family dealing with poverty and the morality of the church at the time. And what I think is the most interesting part of it, the rise of fascism, which uh, sweeps up the out-of-work father. And it's all seen through the eyes of this kid named Liam, who's the youngest one in the family. There's a father, a mother, a sister, and him. And his inability to express himself actually draws us into the story as he watches his mother and sister struggle and his father go from being just uh, broke to being a pretty militant, well, not pretty, a militant racist, uh, shouting at his Irish neighbors to leave the country and carrying out a violent anti-Semitic attack against a Jewish family with some really terrible consequences. And, uh, and then you have this kid, Liam, watching all of this while trying to do what the nuns and the priests are telling to do, which when we get to Philomena, we'll see how that's not always the best strategy for UK boys and girls in the 20th <laughs> century. And uh, But the thing is that, that none of this captures like just the dark cinematic beauty of the film or its welcoming take on some really, really tough material. Um, but it's definitely his most masterpiece feeling film that I've seen. So, hmm. yeah, I recommend it. I will watch it. No, you won't. <laughs> no, you won't. Yes, we. maybe you will. Maybe. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> It's not your favorite material. No, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to church. I'm, you know, I'm fine. Uh, no, but that note does sound good. No, it does, and it's freer. So I, f- I know I'll be in the hands of, you know, someone who's given me something interesting. Because he's, so. there's something that's so honest about him as a filmmaker that you kind of trust him to take you into some of these territories. I feel like that is with Frears, particularly when he's in the UK. And and that's definitely one that yeah. nobody talks about. Like I've never, I never heard about this movie until you mentioned it, until you said you saw it. Like it's not a movie that really showed up on anyone's radar. I think. Yeah. Maybe we should do uh, an <laughs> I'm, episode I'm about, the, about Liam. And, and it's also kind of marks him sort of saying kind of goodbye to Hollywood in a way and kind of being like, you know what? No, I am a British filmmaker. I'm going to go back over here and I'm going to kind of mostly stay here. Like this is sort of marks yeah. him just being like, no, I'm going to be maybe the most British filmmaker <laughs> that I can be. And, uh, and, and that's an interesting transition to kind of go. Cause like he definitely hit a high with, I think with high fidelity and fail safe was liked when it came out. And so to kind of be like, okay, I did Hollywood, right? Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which was like, there's yeah. a way to do it. Like he, like he waves like, okay, I don't want to leave on a hero or Mary Riley note. I got to like, wait until I get it just on a high, low and a high <laughs> fidelity. He's like, we're going out on a high, high note, tr- true yeah. high note. And was like, now I'm, now I'm going to be British again. And kind of, yeah. And that's sort of where he's stayed now since the, since the, for the 21st century is sort of him being like the go-to British filmmaker in a way. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so yeah, let's go. So Dirty Pretty Things is next. That movie's great. That is a t- yeah. it's a tough movie again with like really tough people, like just uh, also dealing with like very like racial and political things in a very smart way and kind of done almost in a way of a thriller ish. It's a very smart movie. 
amazing performances from everybody. Now, today I also found something. Huh? In a lavatory, in one of the hotel rooms, someone's heart. A heart. A human heart. I'm only telling you because you are a rational man. Maybe there's an explanation. Maybe some guy with one of the girls had a heart attack. Rooms are down as empty, so the Spanish guy had to get rid of the body. Hotels hate dead people. It was a healthy heart. So? So your boss was right first time. Somebody brought it with them. Who carries human organs? Lots of people. Name someone. Me. Okay, it's me. I do it all the time. I uh, take my work home. What I'm saying is I could if I was weird. And this is a weird city. Why would anyone do that to a human heart? They sound to me like questions. I don't ask questions after 11 years here. And I'm a certified refugee. You're an illegal, Okwaya. You don't have a position here. You have nothing. You are nothing. Yeah, that's that's a sol- that's another just solid movie from him. Yeah, with uh, Audrey Tattoo from what's uh, the film? Amelie from Amelie and Chiwetel El. El- Sorry, El Jafor. He's Ed, so good. <laughs> Ed Jafor. Chiwetel Ed Jafor. And he is, he is so good. Ugh. And I feel terrible that I'm mispronouncing his name, but he's great in everything. And oh, yeah. they're the main people in this. But yeah, it's a, it's about people who are harvesting yeah. <laughs> organs from immigrants in exchange for immigration papers. Yeah. This is when I feel like Stephen Freer's starts to move from being just a filmmaker to being and I don't I don't mean this in a bad way being a propagandist being someone who is like I have a particular point of view and I feel like it really starts with Liam Mm -hmm. maybe it's there but Liam is a film that really is saying I'm going to make a stand about something and talk about stuff that about I'm really going to deal with racism in a I don't want to say didactic way, but in a way that's not just trying to show it, Mm -hmm. but is trying to make a statement Mm -hmm. about something. And Dirty Pretty Things definitely is taking on the issue, very similar, similar issues that are going on in Liam about who fits in society and what befalls people who are English, but we don't aren't seen as English. Yeah. Right. And that I think that's a universal message. But it's also, again, if you're living in England at that time, probably speaking to English sensibilities in a very specific way. It's sort of like English John Sayles is what it kind of feels like. <laughs> it has the, the politics yeah, of it. I could totally Sayles. see that. Yeah. Back to John Sayles. So then he kind of backs into his biggest success I bet the thing he's made the most money off of which is The Deal from 2003 which is basically very Aaron Sorkin West Wing kind of thing where Michael Sheen plays Tony Blair and it's really very 
it's about a, a, a chapter of English politics that I don't really know anything about, yeah. which is Tony Blair coming up in the Labour Party. But it, it sort of mirrors the evolution of the Dem, uh, the Democratic Party in the United States, where Michael Sheen is sort of the Labour Party politician who gets along with the conservatives and isn't the the rabble rouser and then he is buddies with gordon brown and scottish office you treasury are you all surprised i am to be honest i thought i was being called in for a bollocking instead he's made us the youngest front bench spokesman ever no not quite david Owen was even younger still it's pretty good yes it is so good i'm always sorry i said no Oh, it would be madness. Call the sun. Besides, you forget, I've been up to my eyes in Scottish politics since I was 15. No, I'd be better off waiting for something better to come up. But if it doesn't? Well, that's a risk I'm prepared to take. Besides, nobody ever got the big job without taking risks. Big job? Come on. Don't look at me like that. Isn't that what we came into politics for? Huh? We're happy to work as a team. It's all about a cause and public service, but deep down, you won't change the world until you have the big job. I dreamt up my first speech as leader of the Labour Party when I was 15, and I've been revising it ever since. In here. It does have this this English West Wing kind of feel, but what's... What it really does is it sets up his the, the film The Queen, mm-hmm. which was a big oh, hit yeah. for him. Di was wonderful because she stood up to the establishment. We have no one doing that now. She said, you're detached, elitist people. We are paying millions of pounds to be better than us. And you've got to get out there amongst the people. We, we have a wonderful new prime minister in England, Tony Blair, a compassionate young man who, after 18 years of establishment Tory rule, it's such a breath of fresh air. And I feel he will do something about this in England. Which this will be the first stirrings of what? I don't know, something more interesting. You know, maybe this time people will finally have seen what they actually are. <laughs> Which is? A bunch of freeloading, emotionally retarded, nutters. <laughs> That's just absurd. Why? They have a ludicrous cocoon of privilege and wealth. I mean, they don't pay tax. Uh, yes, they do. Not on all their income. The Queen alone costs us, what, 30, 40 million a year? Look, if you want to have a serious conversation about... I do. ...about the Constitution... We don't have one. ...about ways in which we, as a government, could phase out hereditary privileges, then fine. If you're going to leave, will you take the plate? But, you know, spare me the whole off-with-their-heads thing. Why? Because it insults your intelligence. The Queen cannot be expected to change. It's unimaginable, this country being a republic. Certainly in her lifetime. Why? Because no one would wear it. No one wants it. It's just... daft. It's not a mother thing, is it? What? Well, if she were alive now, your mother would be exactly the same age. I mean, you're always saying how stoical she was. Old-fashioned, uncomplaining, lived through the war. Well, come on, who does that sound like? I'm going to do the washing up. Both of them were written by Peter Morgan, who went on to create The Crown. So, And I'm sure Frears must have a piece of The Crown. <laughs> he has so a piece of The Crown. <laughs> the deal, The Queen, The Crown, this is all... 
Like he basically figured out how to do the the TV thing. Like he took everything he learned in TV and everything he learned in cinema and all of his work, like his burgeoning sense of wanting to tell a historical tale with a point of view and be again, a propagandist, whether for good or bad, but like I have a point of view and I'm going to tell it to you. And when I watched the deal, I had a sense that if I was English, I would probably be really annoyed by it. (laughs) Like a a film that like a really heroic film about Bill Clinton, but I don't know. Uh, You haven't seen, have you seen any of these? No. Well, I'll just say if a lot of people have seen the crown, if you like the crown and I do, with a certain amount of shame that I don't want to admit, <laughs> which is why I didn't nominate all of the actors who were in it for Oscars because they really deserved them this year. <laughs> the season of the crown was amazing. Uh, Elizabeth Debicki, I did give her an award, but not particularly for the crown. But uh, if you loved that, then you really are missing out. If you haven't watched the queen and the deal, because uh, they all really fit mm-hmm. together and you start to really see the voice that uh that's bringing them to us so pretty great and i'm surprised i guess it wouldn't make sense for michael sheen to be in the crown maybe he'll show up in the crown so then the the next batch of films i watched almost all of them and i really like them but they're they all seem kind of slight are they slight they all seem like breezier like you have Miss Henderson Presents Mrs. Henderson Presents is really great I don't understand we were such a success and then everyone copied us now you're telling me we're a disaster there's the accounts you're losing a fortune you mean in the show business you could be a triumph one week and a disaster the next I'm not certain it's worth going on oh you people make me weary you've no courage What I say is stick a thing out and it will come right. I'm trying to save your finances. I don't need your protection, thank you very much. You put on some good shows, but they're obviously not daring enough. Why don't we get rid of the clothes? Pardon? Let's have naked girls. Don't you think? Now, this has been on my mind for some time. I never dared mention it. I too lack courage, it seems. Now, what I propose is that we have nude women in Revue de Ville, as they do in Paris. At our namesake, the Moulin Rouge, for instance. Oh, baby, it's all right. We'll find you some milk. Paris, after all, is just filled with naked women wearing bananas, and dare I say it, making everyone else go bananas in return. Do keep up, Mr. Van Damme. It will be innovative and draw the crowds. I would make back all of my money. You, I imagine, would enjoy yourself being surrounded, as it were, by countless breasts, and we'd all be happy. What you're suggesting isn't possible. That kind of thing isn't done here. Nudity in England. You tend towards safety sometimes, Mr. Van Damme. You're rather bourgeois. I do mean that in a kind way. But I suspect it's not advisable in the show business. What you're forgetting is we need a license from the Lord Chamberlain for whatever we put on the stage. He'll never approve it. The Lord Chamberlain? Yes, the Lord Chamberlain. Or Tommy, little Tommy Baring. Don't be silly. Well, I have, of course, taken that into account. He's a very sweet man. He and his rather dreary wife are on holiday in France, but as soon as he returns, I'll throw a fly at him. Pardon? That's a fisherman's term, dear. It has to do with hooking a trout. You do lead a narrow life. Meanwhile, do begin work on our marvellous new idea. Without permission. (gasps) We found your milk. Judy Dench plays this old English lady 
who runs a theater during World War II with Bob Hoskins. And let me just tell you, it you wouldn't think it, but in this movie, we see Bob Hoskins' penis. So Oh, sign uh, me up. <laughs> <laughs> but but then you have uh Sherry with Michelle Pfeiffer. I didn't see that one. I just couldn't bring uh, myself to watch it. It t- looks really but... uh, Tamara Drew. Tamara Drew is actually that's pretty fun. It's like a think Midsummer's Night sex comedy meets four weddings and a funeral. To the muse. <laughs> However you find her. Who's that? That's Tamara Drew. No, it isn't. I met her with Andy. Good God, what's happened to her? She had a nose job, Dad. She's completely different. That's what Andy said. Poor Tamara. She's such a sad girl. She used to come and help you wash the car, didn't she, Nicholas? Yeah, when she was a teenager. She liked a bit of family after her dad left. Is that Tamara Drew that writes a column in one of the Sundays? Used to. Writes to be independent now. She spent weeks going on about her nose job. Was her old one an awful conk? Yes. She's poured herself into those shorts. I bet don't give us a rush. Hello. Sorry to intrude. Hi, Tamara. Poppy, how are you? I love your new hooter. Thanks. It's not actually new. It's just smaller. <laughs> Lots yeah. of really great BBC TV stars particularly Roger Allum and Tamsin Grieg or Greg, who uh, I really love her in the green wing and she's in black books. She's really, she's a, an excellent actress and she's in it. And I forget the name of the main actress, but she's really good in it. And she's kind of a movie star. who has been in a bunch of things that I haven't seen. Yeah. What's Je- Gemma what's yeah. Adderton. Ar- Adderton. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She plays, a girl who had a big nose who goes away and gets a nose job and she comes back and then everyone falls all over themselves for her. It's really well played. So then we have Lay the Favorite from 2012. And this is actually having really gone into this. This has been the film that's kind of messed with me the most. Um, I think I kind of... (laughs) liked it initially sort of like with the trial of of the chicago seven uh like as a movie it was sort of breezy enough that it brought me along and i felt like i was watching a movie and i was entertained but then when i started actually paying attention to it i realized that i think it's a pretty despicable film which is weird because anyone who's listened to the all of this podcast knows that i you know I am in in sort of deep Freer's love right now, just really going through all of his films. And even more than Hero, which I just, I feel like is an honest misstep. Like this film really bugs me. So we got Rebecca (laughs) Hall playing a ditzy, but brilliant, and also terribly sweet and innocent sex worker turned bookie. She's working with Bruce Willis. Uh, yeah, Bruce Willis's name is Dink Heimowitz. <laughs> okay, so after I got fired, I had to find another job. And I found one in, in the paper. And it was uh, private dancing. You know, going to clients' houses and stripping, basically. Okay. 
And then also I had a pornographic website, which was pictures of me naked, photoshopped to look like I was giving oral sex to my twin and stuff. Eventually, a few other girls joined it too. Nobody knows about that. Nobody. You're a Ganef. A Ganef. Yiddish for a small-time lovable thief. You're going to do very well in this business. And Vince Vaughn. I am not religious, and I don't want to speculate on what kind of chosen person I am or what kind of power center is inside of me. But the truth is the truth. I needed you, and you came. Okay. This is temporary right here. I have a much more permanent, more epic situation that is in the works, but I'm not at liberty to discuss it right now. So, for God's sakes, do not ask me about it. So, now, Beth, how do you suggest I reimagine my vortex in a way that indispensably includes you? Both playing Jewish characters. And as you can hear from Vince Vaughn's, <laughs> very over the top. And I just, I'm wondering, in 2012, why is it okay for non-Jews to be playing Jews even while every other ethnic group or has made it clear that's not okay? I mean... From Mrs. Or, Maisel or least... to Casino, it's just this Jew-facing thing is driving me crazy. <laughs> or at least get John Turturro, you know, who's not no. Jewish. No. But, but he's Jewish. No. You know? No. But what's funny, what's very funny, can I, can, I, can I jump in just for a second? Yes, please do. I know you're going to go in this. What's funny about the Vince Vaughn thing is, uh, this is another Zach and I story from the tales of dark, the underbelly of Hollywood. You'll like this. We wrote a script for a show, and Zach is Jewish, I'm not, about a Nazi hunter, and it was called Jew, and it's about this guy who was this proud Jewish Nazi hunter, and it was a TV pilot, and we were very proud of it, and it was really good, and we had pictured it being like, this should star like someone like a David Paymer, like he would be amazing as this, and so we were going around Hollywood with meetings, like, David, oh, this is the David Paymer pilot, this is so great, this is such a great idea for a show, oh, he's the best. And we met with this lady who will rename nameless. And she's like, David Paymer, no, 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 no. You should get someone like Ed Harris or Vince Vaughn. <laughs> and we both were like, but they're not Jewish. Like, definitely not Jewish. <laughs> and she's like, no, no, that's who you should get for this role as this Holocaust survivor who hunts Nazis, uh, Vince Vaughn. <laughs> and I'm like, Vince Vaughn doesn't read... Even like not even close. Like that's crazy. <laughs> and so that probably is maybe what happened in the meetings for this movie of like, no, 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 no. We don't know. We don't want that person. We want to get Vince Vaughn and Bruce Willis. I don't. <sighs> I mean, what like you can get? You can have the know-how to make Richard Dreyfus the president and fail safe and make that's a great thing. But you can't just bring Dreyfus back. He brought he got his I number, know. Stephen Frears. Call him up. I, guess what it's, he's jewish <laughs> and and it, it's not even really on him even this week when we're recording this sarah silverman just did a podcast where she was talking about how she loves the tv show friends but both the courtney cox and the jennifer aniston character are cast as jewish characters and then they cast them with non-jewish actresses to make them quote likable and the Jewish character in that show, Janice, is the one who's coded Jewish, is yeah. portrayed as annoying and like all these stereotypes. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, as I was thinking about this, like I mentioned it, like I love the TV show Mrs. Maisel and the people who are in it. But it just is really the fact that anyone can argue with 
the idea that anti-Semitism is a real issue that we need to address should be pretty obvious when it's the one ethnicity where it's still okay for people to pretend to be that type of person. And we Mm -hmm. say, okay, well, that's cool. But anyone else does it. Like, aloha, forget about it. You're out of here. You know? And (laughs) I, I actually, I'm not trying to like make fun of the people who say take it out of here i get the idea of like let's like represent representation is is really important it's just the glaring omission of anyone even i never i've never read any articles about this <laughs> and it seems like it's an issue it feel it reeks of studio interference for this movie like, like everything yeah. about this movie feels like this is not a Stephen Frears movie like the ugly poster for it like, I remember when we got this at the video yeah. store, I was like, what is this crap? Like, wait, Stephen Frears? Like, and this was at the time when Bruce Willis was doing, like, 20 movies a month for, like, Redbox or whatever. <laughs> like, just, like, cash and checks left and right. And I had no idea they were supposed to be Jewish. Um, but that's good. that feels like, no, 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 we don't want, we can't, no, no, it's got to be these guys. And you're like, what? Like, you're like, oh, Vince Vaughn, he reads his sort of East Coast. That counts, doesn't it? And it's like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> Not at all. Like, you should have cast John Favreau instead. You picked the wrong guy from Swingers to be in this movie. Yeah. You went the wrong direction. I can like, imagine. You, went with the, you got confused with the wrong person. Uh, the original yeah. version of this had <laughs> Dustin Hoffman and Richard Dreyfus, and they couldn't get it made. And somehow it ends up with Bruce Willis <laughs> and Vince Vaughn. <laughs> I, so I, I i'm with you i i have a hard time believing that Stephen frears <laughs> is like is as tone deaf and uh, uh, although yeah well we'll get into it in my wrap-up about frears but i just uh, i feel like he does the uk way better than he does the u.s america yeah, yeah. <laughs> man they should have cast adam sandler and lay the favorite yeah yeah oh my god (laughs) yes they did it wrong no respect Mm. (sighs) sorry then he follows that up with muhammad ali's greatest fight which should be in a double feature with the trial of the chicago seven clay aka ali v the united states this is a waste of the court's time no one wants to hear this case excuse me chief i want to hear the case and I, I'll tell you why. Ali never backed down from his beliefs. He took the consequences of refusing induction. Bill, you can't slow us down on this. We have a very heavy load of cases to consider today. He took the consequences. He lost his title. He gave up almost three years in his prime, millions of dollars, so that he could stand up for what his conscience told him was right. He's clearly a man of great principle. The court is always on dangerous ground when it decides cases according to the justice's own views. Which one of us is free of those, John? I think it's terribly important that we exercise self-restraint. Well, I think it's also important that we express what we believe. Uh, I'm out of here. There's clearly going to be a vote. I'm recusing myself. I was the Solicitor General at the time of Ali's conviction. I hate the Nation of Islam, Elijah Mohammed and his bunch of thugs and gangsters organized from the jail. They preach racial segregation. I am an integrationist.
In it, Frank Langella, who played the prejudiced judge Julius Hoffman in the trial of the Chicago 7, plays a similarly conservative judge in Muhammad Ali's greatest fight. And in a very weird alignment between the two films, the actor Damien Young plays Ramsey Clark in the Ali film, a role that was played by Michael Keaton in Trial of the Chicago 7. Weird. Damien Young then shows up in the Trial of the Chicago 7 in a scene with Keaton's Ramsey Clark that is lit and staged very similarly to the scenes with Clark and Berger in Freer's Ollie. Interesting. So it definitely feels like these two movies are in dialogue with each other. I just can't tell if Sorkin is referencing Freer's or blatantly ripping him off. (laughs) It's also worth noting that Dana Ivey is in the Ali film as the secretary to Christopher Plummer's Justice John Harlan, which makes this her second appearance on the podcast, her last being for The Imposters. And the Ali film also features Barry Levinson, the director, as one of the Supreme Court justices, which is pretty cool. Then there's Philomena, a movie that I've avoided at all costs because I was raised Catholic and I just can't bring myself to watch that movie. <laughs> just can't, I just can't do it. Do you know, what do you, what do you just, think it's about? I just see the word Catholic and based on true story and I run as far away as I can possibly do any, it doesn't matter what it is or what it's about. Like I've done my therapy. I've done my time. Like I don't, I just like, I love Steve Coogan. I think it's interesting that he wrote it. I just can't bring I, I don't i have no idea what it's about like my guess is either like something the church did that was bad or there's some cover-up or someone that, that they were mean to and i'm just like i lived that i don't need to have anything to do with it so <laughs> they'd only come for mary but anthony wouldn't let her out of his sight they were inseparable i think what they did to you was evil no 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 i don't like that word no no evil's good story-wise i mean Some of the nuns were very nice. It was a breach birth. They wouldn't even give her any painkillers. Excellent. Again, story-wise. So, um, can we go and talk to these nuns? Uh, yes, we could try. Maybe you'll have more luck than mum's had. Well, I've been several times over the years to ask where he was. And they're very helpful. They're not like they used to be. They said they'd try and trace him for me. But they haven't. No. Can you help me find him, Martin? Well, it's, it's a very interesting story. Do you know, Martin, I'm taking Mum down for a few days next week. Why don't you come along with us? You could visit Ross Cray with her. There's plenty of room. It's a Vauxhall Cavalier. Oh, no. I mean, I mean, thank you, but uh, I, I'd like to fly. Well, I'll just say that it's waiting there <laughs> for you, because I feel like, because I know how much you love Steve Coogan... Yeah, I really do a lot, yeah. I feel like that might be your doorway into it. And if you love Steve, I mean, it really does hit all of the Stephen Freer's notes. We've got Judy Dench. She's great in it. It's basically a story of she was, she got pregnant when she was young and had to go to one of these convents where the nuns took their babies and sold them to American families and never told the the girls where they were. They made the girls work hard labor for them. It's kind of this terrible story of what they what 
they did to this woman. And then she is remembering this and her daughter reaches out to Steve Coogan playing one of a Steve Coogan kind of role, like a guy who used to work in politics, who was a journalist who then went to work in politics and got wrapped up in some sort of scandal that we don't really understand and lost his job. And now he's stuck pitching a human interest story (laughs) that he hates to his paper. And then, but then as he gets involved, he really starts to get really pissed off on behalf of this woman, Philomena played by, Judy Dench and she is a great character and ultimately she even though she, she's the one this all happened to and she's the one who's not angry um and it makes her really I didn't love the film maybe I I don't know it was so on the nose it was felt like oh this should have won the Oscar the year it came out because I never want to see it again <laughs> um but I'm glad I saw it. Let's sort of like Spotlight or one of these films that is a really important film. And if I had lived it, I might want to go back. It's it's weird because it, I feel like it's more for you <laughs> than for me. But because I don't have the trauma that it would that would make me love it once I like I can watch it easily and be like, oh, OK, well, that was Spotlight. That another was movie I will never see <laughs> ever, never, ever. <laughs> So, oh, uh, it's I great. I don't care. Stanley, <laughs> Stanley Tucci will never, is so good in that film. I, I don't even need to do it. I'll go if it's if it's one of those toilet church movies, then I'll go to that. But I won't do <laughs> that. No, but then he so then he follows so, filming up with the program, which I have not seen, but I'm actually very interested in that. He uses brakes a lot, didn't he? On the final climb, on his way around the corners, he needed to use his brakes to slow himself down. You know, on the way up the mountain. You don't think that's weird? Do you think that's natural? Why isn't it enough for you that today he was just simply the best of a great bunch? Because, John, there's there's nothing in his record to support that. He used to get beaten by climbers easily, and today he destroyed them. Prior to this tour, his best finish on a mountain stage was 39th. But now he's a man transformed into the finest climber I've ever seen. He's recovered from cancer. I'm turned into bloody Superman. Look, I just don't think a man who's been through that kind of illness would then risk putting potentially dangerous drugs into his body. Well, I think the converse is equally persuasive, Charles. Why are you so obsessed with this? Why are you not obsessed with this? You're supposed to be a journalist. Oh, well, well, down, 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 no, 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 I don't down, say it for down, nothing. Down. You guys were here last year during that Festina madness. You saw how many drugs were seized by the police. And here we are, one year on in the tour of renewal, and the average racing speed has gone up. Can you explain that to me? Even if Armstrong was doping, he couldn't possibly hide it. The peloton would know. You think they don't know? Come on. It's all Murtha. John, nobody's going to say anything. Nobody wants to ruin the party. Just let the sponsors roll in, let the media tell their lies, and to hell with the public. And hey, if the winners are all cheats, fuck it. They're too afraid. The cyclists have too much on the line, so none of the riders are going to speak. Almost. If the cast is great, the story is the, the Lance Armstrong story, and it is... Maybe I don't care enough about racing, maybe I don't have a... Like, bike racing, or maybe I don't have enough of an affinity for Ben Foster. I li- I've liked him in other things, but... 
I didn't even, I don't think I liked the point of view that it took either. Hmm. Like it, yeah, I just, sorry, maybe it, maybe someone else would love it, but uh, yeah, I would definitely rather watch Muhammad Ali's greatest fights <laughs> fight like three more times, but let's talk about Florence Foster. And you can tell us once you see the program, I'll, you can, I'll give you a book report if, <laughs> if you think it's good. Uh, but Florence Foster Jenkins this is a weird and excellent film with Meryl Streep playing a true character who was sort of a society lady in at the I guess the early 20th century who funded a lot of art and she was a she wanted to be a singer and she was a very bad singer but everyone told her she was a good singer because that's what you do to rich ladies until you can record them and then take that recording elsewhere. And so that's kind of what happened. She was recorded and her single was one of the first sort of schadenfreude, embarrassing, <laughs> like Orson Welles and the, and the wine commercial, like the thing that people sort of laugh about at the expense of the one who did it. Yeah. seen ironwood uh, no it's ironweed iron 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 yeah sorry ironweed the film with jack nicholson and meryl streep playing 1930s depression era working class poor folk did you ever see no. that it's a re- i remember it it being at that time when i would just see anything that jack nicholson or meryl streep did and meryl streep has a scene in it where her character gets up on stage and she sings. And for a moment, we see it through, through while she's singing, we see it through her eyes and we're like, oh my God, she really is wonderful. She's had this sort of terrible life. And then she sings and we have this screen moment of like, oh, she's really great. And everyone's moved by it. And then it does this hard cut to the last few notes of her singing and she's terrible and nobody's listening. And, I feel like this whole movie, Florence Foster Jenkins, is Stephen Frears making a movie. Like, he saw that and was like, if I'm going to make a Meryl Streep movie, I want to 
just make the whole movie about that <laughs> moment like, about that moment it's interesting it's funny and sad and Hugh Grant plays her husband who's also married to another woman and Simon Helberg from um What's the TV show? The Bazinga oh, TV show? Oh, yeah, yeah. Show? The uh, Big Bang Theory. Big Bang yeah. Theory is in it. And he's actually, he's very good. He's very good. It's a, it's a, uh, it is a charming film. And I, I definitely recommend it. And that is pretty much, I didn't see Victoria and Abdul, uh, which I probably should. The next and his collaborations with Judy Dench. But that's just, when TV. he goes full but TV. But really good yeah. TV. Like a very English scandal is fantastic. Uh, it's really, really, really just interesting and like dark and kind of funny. And it's just, um, yeah, no, it's just like great. Hugh Grant just being really kind of sleazy. And- you hear what Harold Wise said about the trip to Rhodesia? I would be very, very, very disappointed. I would be very, very, very disappointed. I'd be very, very, very disappointed, and so would my whippet. Steve Tartar, sir. Thank you very much, indeed. Sir, Senor Baselli, I have news. John Pardo has practically confirmed it. Grimmond is stepping down. One more year, 18 months at the most. And I would be very, very, very disappointed if that's not true. What can I say but congratulations? Just think, though, given the balance of power, the next leader of the Liberal Party could be Deputy Prime Minister. Well, quite. I never did care very much for the word deputy. Well, I'll be there for you all the way. Finance is going to be a problem, of course. As ever. Well, I'd love to help, but I'm not exactly a millionaire. And I'm stuck here in an office with a leaky roof, and I can't even afford my own staff. Tell me, what's that secretary of yours like, Elizabeth? Any good? Oh, yes. Particularly in bed. Pedro. I adore you. You and your monstrous appetites now. When you were a lay preacher? Well, obviously you were, literally. <laughs> Call it a hobby. Some people play golf. I like screwing. <laughs> Between the two of us, when I was young, I was so desperate, I'd go looking on the spear side. I'm telling me that you were musical. I'm a little bit, sir. Yes. If that's not too shocking. Peter, Pedro, Bessel, Von, Bessel. Well, out of anyone in this room, I'm probably the least shocked of all. Do you understand my meaning? I think so. It's hardly a great surprise now, is it? I suppose not. What would you say you are, vis-a-vis men and women? What are you, 50-50? More like 80-20. I mean, 80% for the ladies. Yeah. Yes, I call myself 80%, but uh, 80% gay. Gosh, I'm not sure that word's ever been said within these walls before, and not in that context. My wife insists that gay means happy. I think she's absolutely right. And I intend to be very happy, very many times in my life, and very much so with him. Not very, very, very much so. Careful now, keep it discreet. I'm not sure any boy's worth ending up in prison for. You're protecting me, Pedro. If I must, Jeremy, then I will. At last! 
Thank God, someone to protect me from myself. I am going to order some porch to celebrate. Peter, we are nothing but a pair of old queens. To Her Majesty. Her Majesty. It's classic Russell T. Davies, where it's just sort of dealing with a true story that happened. Uh, it, uh, it sort of, and it's just like, Russell T. Davies is such an interesting, great guy and a great writer. And it's just, a, it's good, solid, I think, just miniseries television. And did you ever see it? Oh, yeah. It's re- really holds up. Uh, just hold on. Just let me just say to, to follow, so people know the story. It's the story, again, very English political story about British Liberal Party leader Jeremy Thorpe, played by Hugh Grant, and he's accused of a conspiracy to murder his gay ex-lover. Yeah. It's 10 trial in 1979, and this has shades of prick up your ears again. Mm-hmm. Ben Wishaw plays the 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 gay lover. Great. He's really, really... Yeah. He's really... And it's just, it's such a great time capsule of swinging London. And so it's very compelling and also kind of gross and ugly. And yes, they're just, those two actors, Grant and Wishaw, are just killing it. And I think it's just like three episodes, yeah. right? It's not a long series. Yeah, just three really three episodes. Easy to watch. Very good. Just like, yeah, high, high caliber TV making. Uh, so it's almost like a film. It's like a three hour movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and then he does that again with uh, Quiz, which you turned me Yeah, and Quiz, that was one of my picks for Noscar. Uh, just a three, again, a three-part miniseries based on a true story. Also, again, about this British scandal of these people uh, maybe or definitely cheating on their version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. We're welcoming back Charles, Major Charles Ingram into the chair. Morning, Major. Morning, Faulty. <laughs> uh, so, do you have a strategy then, Major? Well, um, well, yeah, I do. I do have a strategy, actually. I, um, I was a bit uh, defensive on the last show, uh, you know, talking myself out of answers that I, frankly, I should have known and, and do know. And um, so, yeah, so I, I'm... I'm yeah, I'm sort of going on the counterattack. <laughs> We're going on the counterattack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and basically, I'm I'm just going to try and show a bit more self-commitment. Well, uh, let's put the strategy to the test. Right, Major Charles Ingram, are you ready to play? This for eight thousand pounds. Who was the second husband of Jacqueline Kennedy? Adnan Khashoggi. Ronald Reagan, Aristotle Onassis, Rupert Murdoch. Right, we're not expecting this guy to be in long. We need two lifelines down, so make sure we're prepped for the next. Roger, Roger. I would have thought, I would have thought it would be Aristotle Onassis. Um... Yeah, one of, one of my uh, one of my sub strategies is with oh, sub strategy. Yeah, 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 and sub sub strategy. But one, one of my one of my sub strategies is to take my time and um, list all the all the uh, options. So, Adnan Kasahogi, Ronald Reagan, Rupert Murdoch, Aristotle Onassis. <laughs> Thank you. 
Yeah, yeah, I think I, I'm pretty sure it's um, Aristotle and Assis. Final answer. Final answer, yeah. He didn't have to play. Well, this new self-committed Charles is a wild and crazy man. That's the correct answer. And again, him working with Michael Sheen. Michael Sheen playing the host of the game show. Just like really, really good actors. Just like really solid. And again, just like a little bit funny, but just like in like just good flawed people. And then he follows, or that's made the same time. Hold on, just just let's just give a give credit where credits due. We got to mention uh, Matthew McFadden. Yeah who people see in succession now and he was also in the assistant that one the one sort of standout scene in the assistant and he i even though Michael Sheen is the star who's in it Matthew McFadden is the star of the film of I'm going to call it a film and he's really He's really good. And I feel he's, and he's, a great he's someone that I feel we're just beginning to see like the really good, like I think he is going to be constantly giving us some really interesting stuff. Like he's been around for a while, but I really feel like I've been taking notice of him more in, recently. And I think he's just going to keep being great. And it, there's something really fascinating about him and something really fragile and, and funny. And just like, yeah, there's like, I really like him a lot. Um, yeah. So anyway, I was interrupting you on your way to what is at this point, I guess, the pinnacle of Stephen Freer's achievements, only in that it's the most And recent. that's uh, State of the Union, uh, him going back to Nick Hornby, and it's really, really good. Hi. I bought you a drink. Thanks. Thank you for coming. Oh, that's okay. You've been here long? No, no. That's my fort. It's not really my fort. Right. Hugh. It is my second, though. You're entitled to two. When you want a pee break? I hope so. I'll make it last as long as I can. It'll seem like you've been for a poo. Oh, hell. I'll announce right at the beginning that I can never poo in someone else's house. I think I could say just about anything today and you'd laugh. Within reason. Let's not test that theory out. There is a difficulty, though. What constitutes reason? There is a talking point. We've probably got enough talking points without delving into the history of Western philosophy. You're right. Who was the reason philosopher? I want to say Kant. I want to and I will. Kant. There. I said it. Shall I check? No, please don't. We've only got a few minutes. Are you sure? It'll just take a sec. Yeah, I'm sure, but thank you. Were the kids okay? Yeah, fine. Did Christina remember she was staying late? I hope so. And it's uh, mm-hmm. Chris O'Dowd and Rosamund Pike. And it's a pretty simple premise. It's just a couple taking marriage counseling and it's them hanging out in the pub before going to therapy, basically, or the counseling. And it's just sort of like that 30 or it's shorter. It's like that 10 minutes before. I think it was a web show. So the episodes are only like 10, 12 minutes long. And it's just them in that moment sitting in a pub waiting or not wanting to go to th- couples therapy 
And it's so funny and it's so smart and it's so well written. The dialogue is just great. And Nick Hornby actually wrote the script for it. And it's just, I think it's just one of the best things I've seen in a long time. And I guess they're making a second season soon with Stephen Frears directing. So I'm very excited to see what that's about. But uh, I love it. And I don't know where you can find it. I don't even remember how I saw it. Like, I don't know where it exists in the world. But definitely check it out. Like, it's really easy to watch the whole show in one sitting because I think in total it takes up like 70 minutes or something like that like because the episodes are so short so you can just fly through season one you know in in one sit down for sure and it's both actors just like at the top of their game like I love Chris O'Dowd so much and and I like Rosamund Pike quite a bit and they're both just like really like their connection and that and them playing off each other and that show is so so smart and so funny yeah Chris O'Dowd is the best thing in the program. Yeah. I think. Because he's like the reporter or whatever. Yeah. But again, yeah. it's but it's really he's if you compare the two, you're just like, oh, well, State of the Union, he gets to do what we really like. And in the program, he's making us like it because he's there. <laughs> um he's one of those actors, like he's as a like, do you think of him? He's a, I think of him as like one of the best sort of actors of his generation. Like I enjoy him. I've enjoyed him since the IT crowd mm-hmm. or the yeah. IT yeah. group. Yeah, IT crowd. Uh, yeah. The IT crowd. And then when he started showing up in American films, I thought, oh, this guy's going to be a star. And he kind of has because he's in the, he's in Get Shorty and he's in, and he stars in things sometimes. But I feel like he's, I don't think the world is wrong about him, but, and maybe he just has the career that he wants and he seems like very successful, but does, I don't think people know who he is, although people do know who he is. What's your take on him? I agree. I think, I think he could probably still comfortably go into a coffee shop and not be bothered. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he likes that. Maybe that's what he wants. But like, he's one of those people where he, when he first showed up, I was like, this guy's really funny. I really like him. And then the more things he did, I'm like, oh, he's also just a really great actor and is really funny. Like, what a great, a great combination. And and if 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 anyone has a chance, like that Get Shorty show is actually really good. Like, it seems like it should oh, it, it shouldn't be. And you right. look at it and you're like, that what is this? Why does this exist now? Like, seems like 30 years too late. But it's totally good, and he's totally great in it. Like, that is a, a funny show. Uh, and yeah, he's just I really like Chris O'Dowd a lot, and I and like yeah, I feel like. He's another one that, like, I think could be on the verge of, like, if he just gets that right TV lead or something. Yeah, it might take a while, but, like, I feel like something will break through to Amer- to American audiences anyways. I feel like it could could happen anytime. Like, it's just, like, he's always almost there. But you're right. Maybe he doesn't want to do that. Maybe he's smart. <laughs> or maybe he's, yeah, I think maybe he's already there and we don't know it. Like... Uh, and then so just to, to wrap things up here on Stephen Frears, the next thing he has, at least uh, as far as IMDb, coming up is a film called The Lost King. And it's written by Steve Coogan and Jeff Pope and starring Steve Coogan and Sally Hawkins, mm. who I love. Mm. So that sounds really exciting. So Frears. I'm looking forward to this. Keep going with the quality with Stephen Frears. And I think. We didn't say it out loud, but I think like part of this episode too is I think the world is very wrong about Stephen Frears. I think he is 
kind of one of our great filmmakers. And I think he's kind of taken for granted. Like people don't really talk about him in terms of his whole career. Like we'll talk about little individual movies here and there, but like, I think his filmography as a whole is very good and very interesting, even with the misfires within it. Like he is, everyone has a few, everyone does. Good. Yeah. You have a few mistakes, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. And I think that he needs more cred. I think pe- more people need to go out and just watch a bunch of Stephen Frears movies just because he made them and you know, it's good. You know, start with High Low Country or uh, Liam and, you know, or, or High Fidelity and go from there, you know? He is, a, for the most part, 98%, a very dependable director and a very dependable director of actors and getting great performances. Like, not just because he's got many people to an Oscar nomination or whatever, but it just, you can tell that his relationship with actors is super strong. And most of his movies are, you know, character pieces, character studies for the most part. And they're just they're just really rich. They're just really good. And he is a chameleon in a way. Like you don't I don't know exactly if I can pinpoint his visual style as a filmmaker. Um, but I think there's definitely like a thematic thing going on in all his movies. And just yeah, just the fact that he is a director that you can trust that will get great performances from actors. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is probably his greatest strength. And you kind of get the sense, like we see the actors, but having watched the films, I kind of get the sense that he probably is just as good with collaborating with cinematographers and collaborating with writers and collaborating with production designers. Like you get a sense, his, his sensitivity as a filmmaker, we see it with the actors, but I feel like it's probably there throughout. And that probably comes from his training as a guy working in TV and really Mm -hmm. learning how to direct a film that you were never going to get credit for directing because people don't really give credit to people who direct TV. Yeah. But you still got to make it great and you still got to work with all these departments and be a filmmaker. Um, So, uh, yeah, I think that's that's one of the things about him. And having watched all of his films, not all of them now, but watched so many of them in such a short time. One of the things that really jumps out is that ever since his first film in 1968, two of the main topics that he is looking at are about the many different layers of sexual violence, whether it's from the church or individuals or just happening in between individuals and racial and cultural prejudice and intolerance. And what's, I think, unique about it is that for the most part, he does this by including these elements in films that aren't really about that at all. That it's just, Mm -hmm. we see this and we feel it and it's happening. It happens right in, things that happen behind closed doors in another film happen right in front of us. And then the characters have to contend with it. And Mm -hmm. it's not, so it's not moralizing, but it also is deeply moral. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that means that his films have aged and will continue to age very well in a way that maybe other filmmakers of his generation won't. Uh, and um, and then the other thing I got was that, yeah, just that his UK work, if you would ask me before this what the big Frears films were, I would say The Grifters and Dangerous Liaisons and High Fidelity. And now having seen so many of his films, I actually consider all three of those to be 
lesser Freers in that his UK stuff, when he's working in that world, he is such a stronger, more confident, more comfortable filmmaker. And I really feel Mm -hmm. like even if I might disagree with him sometimes... I am. I feel co- very comfortable with him being my guide into that world. And when he goes to America, it feels like he's really strong when he's working in a genre that isn't present day, mm-hmm. or when he's working with someone else like a George Clooney or a John Cusack who is telling him basically hiring him to direct the kind of American movie they want to make, and then he can really serve that. But the two times that he's tried to make a present-day American film, Hero and Lay the Favorite, (laughs) it's like those are the only two times that he gets it wrong. And Interesting. I don't know. I probably couldn't... Like, uh, There's a lot of American directors who probably, if they went and tried to make a UK film, and this has probably happened, and if you're there and you watch it, you're like... No, 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 no. You're good, but go back to making films in New York. <laughs> go back to America. <laughs> yeah, that's not. This is not a UK film, yeah. and so it's not a. It's not a slight at all, but it's just something to notice, and it's why I kind of I don't hold him as responsible for a hero and lay the favorite. I feel like we, in both those cases, you've suggested that it sounds like studio meddling, and I feel like that's also part of it. Like, you're a fish out of water. You're more likely to feel obliged to take the opinions of whatever idiot is in the room who's in charge, whereas when you're on your home turf, you kind of know how to just swat those things aside and move forward. (laughs) So maybe just too polite to tell people, (laughs) no, (laughs) I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Uh, in the U.S., but in the U.K., I get a sense he's not that polite at all. He's going, I'm, I'm going to make my movie, <laughs> and, and he does it. So, uh, yeah, yeah, um, he's good. Have you ever thought about being a sex worker? Or robbing a bank? Or maybe you're bored and thinking of climbing Mount Everest on a whim. If you've got a bad idea. We've got good advice from the people who've been there. Hi, I'm Marty Caproni. And I'm Joe Garrix, and we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Good Advice for Bad Ideas, right here on the Paperhouse Podcast Network. It will be interesting. We promise. Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe by Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform. So, The Director's Wall, the podcast that you host with our good friend AJ Gonzalez, where you explore a full filmography, sort of like we just did with Stephen Frears, <laughs> except over a really going into of, one yeah, film. <laughs> yeah. You did M. Night Shyamalan. You're currently in the middle of Francis Ford Coppola. And really, there's a lot there in Francis Ford Coppola's middle. <laughs> a lot of wine, a lot of pasta. <laughs> that was a cheap shot, but I liked it. Uh, <laughs> uh and I would totally, you know what? I would totally do Stephen Frears, I think. And I could see AJ being done with that. And I think that would be an interesting haul. Even though we did the yeah. Cliff's Notes version here, there's so much gold. There's so much interesting things. And like, 
I will gladly rewatch Mary Riley again and maybe watching it within the context of everything. I'll notice something I didn't the first time around. So like, I think, I mean, the, the, the problem with the nice thing about our show and the not nice thing about director's wall is that it'll take me, you know, five years to do a person. So like <laughs> the, like in my lifetime, you know, who knows how many we'll end up doing, but Frears, I can definitely see making a short, a short list if there, if that can even exist for that show. Um, yeah, you wouldn't no. get bored. I wouldn't get would bored. Be, I would be hard because yeah. I would want to do a complete one and find all the TV stuff. So that would be the hard thing is like, could we get like all that 12 years of, you know, t- 70s British television? I don't know. Maybe now it's easier with the streaming Internet stuff. Uh, well, I feel like you're kind of at an odd juncture in the Francis Ford Coppola work. You mm-hmm. just finished up Peggy Sue Got Married, and now aren't you going into some little... Yeah, we're, we're going to do like a lot of his weird TV stuff in the 80s, sort of between movies. He just kind of did a lot of weird little side projects, probably for money. Uh, and most of these things we're having to watch, you know, find some weird, you know, bootleg of or whatever. So it'll be an interesting... An interesting episode, to say the least. Like, everyone has been. But, like, I'm really excited to kind of go into these little bits and pieces. Well, uh, so, cool. I'm looking forward to it. Now, you... (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So, you do Radio 8 Ball Show. You've been taking a little bit of a break. You got stuck on episode 666 and thought, that's a good place to take a break. I agree. Um, so yeah. do you have anything like, I don't know where to tie this in, like a freersy thing, a country Western well, thing. Like, uh, where where do me, you go with this? Well, let me tell you, first of all, just so people, as if people don't already know, but if this is the the only episode of this show you've ever listened to, uh, the radio eight ball is a pop Oracle where we answer questions by picking songs at random and interpret those randomly chosen songs as the answers to the questions. I've been doing it since 1998. And so the way you, keep a project like that going for that long as you know how to listen to your own internal clock and take breaks when necessary. Uh, but uh, it's all about synchronicity. And I think we were talking about high, low country and maybe one of the reasons that I feel such a kinship for it has to sort of a synchronistic connection with these different actors and people that are in it. But there's an interesting synchronicity in the day that we're recording this, Brian is, is, May 18th, an important day in your personal historical iconography. No, not that I can think of. I See, as a Northwest kid, you're a little bit younger than me. But May 18th, 1980 was the eruption That's of Mount St. That's right. Helens. Well, it was before I was born. Oh, well, <laughs> to me, see, I went to, I went to camp at Spirit Lake mm-hmm. Camp uh, right below the mountain the summer before the mountain exploded. And I was like 10 years old. It was my first time away at camp. And it was like this profound thing to have this mountain explode. Those images were really important to me. And it's always been sort of this defining, I don't know, if I was going to make a film about a kid who has a loss of innocence around like the fragility of life, I think... It would be about a kid who this would be the story of like a kid who went to camp at this lake and had this great thing. And then this mountain exploded and fell on top of the lake and this bottomless lake no longer exists. And there's and there's just all these great synchronicities like that was also the same week that The Shining was released. That's also Pacific Northwesty. Yeah. And the blood pouring out of those 
those elevators really felt like the smoke mm-hmm. pouring out of Mount St. Helens. And so I don't know where that connects with <laughs> Stephen Frears, but for me, like today, the whole time that I was thinking of having this conversation with you, I was just thinking, oh, two Northwest kids, and we're doing this uh, on the di- the day, the 41 years yeah, the ago, 41st anniversary of uh, Mount St. Helens. But that, it, it was pre, so when September were you, when of were you 1980. Born, so I just, oh, wow. So actually, I was there inside my mom. <laughs> But that, wow, you know what? Not... You know what's crazy is so, so I existed at sort of at that time, you know, depending yeah. on your politics. Um, but I, yeah, I I was around, uh, sort of, yeah, uh... <laughs> yeah. Well, I I don't know if it's just politics. It could be spirituality. It could be like yeah. I, yeah. I've always thought that for like because I was in I was in utero in 1968 and i've always felt like yeah the assassination of martin luther king and the effect it had on my mom affected me before i was born so i wonder if the like what was did does your family tell stories about mount st helens was there uh my uncle was on mount st helens when it erupted shut up fun fact <laughs> yeah uh he uh Thought it would be cool to see a volcano erupt. Idiot. Uh, and he w- and everyone was like, don't do that. And he's like, no, this will be fun. And so he broke through. Oh. Uh, so all the, the blocked roads and just kind of hiked, like drove up, somehow got all the way up as far as he could. It erupted. And then it was like, oh, shit, this was a terrible idea. Um, and he's alive. He's He lived to tell the story. And he basically describes that it was during the day. And it became so dark where he was that he couldn't see his hand in front of his face in the middle of the afternoon. And he didn't know where he was. And so he was able to walk down the mountain by feeling mailboxes on the side of the road. And luckily he was a welder. So in his truck, he had all his welding protective gear and a respirator. So he just grabbed all of that. He just happened to have it in his truck and didn't even think that he needed it. It was there because he had it for work. And so he put all that on and like goggles and helmet and all this protective gear and spent like a day and a half walking down Mount St. Helens to get to, you know, where it was safe enough. He totally lost his truck. It got totally covered in ash or whatever. Uh, but yeah, that, that really happened. <laughs> we should make and this movie. Always, this is, you have, we have that, two greats. No one, no one has made a good Mount St. Helens movie. Can't you see like a good Magnolia type movie yep. about Mount St. Helens erupting in 1980? Like, oh yeah. Yeah. Like no one is like, that's a movie. Like, that was a crazy moment in American history that no one cares about. Like how often does a fucking volcano erupt in America and just totally fill like ash, they found ash from it like across the world, like it just filled the sky. It, like for those who are too young or don't know, like well, there's footage, news footage of it erupting. It's intense looking. It's crazy, and you can visit Mount St. Helens. It's still an active volcano. Uh, and I remember as a kid going on a field trip and visiting, and you just saw the like melted, burnt up trees for miles and miles. It like just felt like Armageddon. Like it was really crazy. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. Let's make this movie. I agree. When this podcast thing doesn't work out for us, <laughs> let's make our uh, Mount St. Helens uh, Oscar winner and Stephen Frears can direct it. Oh, that'd be amazing. <laughs> uh, let's get, you know, I, I think, how, how can an Englishman understand a volcano? 
<laughs> that is there even volcanoes in Great Britain? I I mean. I mean, uh, I guess they like maybe he would think there was a dragon inside or some shit. I don't know. I mean, there, there. But... I mean, <laughs> Jim Broadbent sometimes seems like he's sitting on a pile of rage. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's just funny because I was just preparing, and we'll, we'll, move, we'll move to the end of this. But I was just in in uh, thinking about the uh, the Mount St. Helens. I was showing videos on YouTube to my girlfriend. And I was trying to explain to her this guy Harry Truman, not the yep. president, but he who wouldn't was this, leave. Yeah, this old guy who wouldn't leave the the mountain. And yep. I remember when I was at camp that summer, he was already in the news saying, "I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to leave." And he became like the news played him up. And in these uh, in this footage, Dixie Lee Ray, who was the first female governor in the United States. And the governor of Washington at that time is talking about how she really had a hard time with Harry Truman because he was encouraging people to do exactly what your uncle did. She's like saying she's encouraging people. He was encouraging people to go past our warnings and the clothes <laughs> and to try and get there. And it's just very irresponsible. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and that's you know, going to be it's, just... yeah, it's great. Your uncle is a that's a great story. You Actually, that wouldn't be too hard to shoot. I mean. No, it's the way he tells it. It seemed like a very harrowing, crazy experience of his life. So uh. there's videos of people out running, try, like riding their truck to try and outrun the the uh, cloud of smoke. He's lucky that he wasn't in the actual blast zone because he yeah. would have just been melted. And he was far enough away that it was just like the crazy ash, but still way. It probably high, went out the higher. other side. Like yeah. he was probably on the oh, side that maybe. didn't explode because yeah. it exploded yeah. horizontally. That was the crazy thing about. In, like you don't you think of a volcano exploding up, up yeah but it exploded out, out. <laughs> down and to the left uh, <laughs> yeah what does garrison think about how the explosion of the uh anyways so anyway. that was our epic freer's high low country episode as long as if you were to watch all three episodes of quiz or very british scandal but i'm glad instead that you chose to listen to us talk about a director that I have a feeling we will revisit again when I watch Hero. But <laughs> I think that I'm excited that we did this. And even though I wasn't a huge fan of High Low Country, I'm a huge fan of Stephen Fears. And now maybe I will be a bigger fan of High Low Country now that you've unpacked it and kind of made my brain think about a lot of things. Uh, so we have a very different episode <laughs> for the next one. Uh, we will be covering... <laughs> I'm very excited... The Fairly Brothers Three Stooges movie. Uh, this is one that I've been wanting to do for oh. a while. Uh, very, so very excited. The subtleties that are in a high-low country do not exist in the performances in the Three Stooges movie. Um, but, you know, it's okay. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, I'm really well, excited. The, to the Fairly Brothers this. are no... They're no Stephen Frears, but the Three the Three Stooges movie is... Uh, <laughs> I I feel I feel much better about the Three Stooges movie than you feel about or felt about the High Low Country coming into this. Uh, yeah, and we did two episodes in a row of directors who made Nick Hornby things into a movie. So there's a little connection there that we didn't even plan on. In that the Farrellys did Fever, Fever Pitch. Pitch. Yep. So a film that we almost did and then realized no. <laughs> I like I like that movie, but not I did not a good fit. Um, but yeah, stay. <laughs> can, some, someday we can do it, I guess. Uh, but yeah, tune in to that. I'm very excited, uh, and 
and yeah, just watch the heck out of some Stephen Frears movies until then. Okay, well, yes, you should, and I hope you do. And, <clears throat> oh, shit. I forgot to mention that Jesse Plemons is in the program. Okay. It's well, fine. Now I did. Okay. Well, until next time, folks, just remember that the world is wrong. And it's probably wrong about you. Hey, listen. I'm going in with Hoover. I'll come back for you. You just keep moving. Grab hold that wire. Let me see you do it. in big boy's place thinking that if he'd done to me as I did to him I'd have left him to die so the thought of my death seemed like justice well served this episode is brought to you by Voodoo Ranger it's beer it's hoppy trend-setting, innovative, served with a little sarcasm, just like Paperhouse Network. Paperhouse Network is hoppy? Uh, yeah? It's like beer for your ears. Get yourself a Voodoo Ranger!